Hello and welcome to Story Radio, the podcast for readers, writers and lovers of literature everywhere. Today we're listening to The Watchers, written and read by Kay Hart. June, still bundled in her mittens and scarf, puts the pigeon on the kitchen table in front of me and stands back without a word to watch what I'll do. I put down my spoon. The bird's glassy eyes look up at me. My reflection concaves in the pupil. It's dead. June, I say. What the hell? I found it, she says. I can see that. Why'd you take it home with you? It's the eighth one we saw this week. Mary and I counted. What did you do with the others? I left them. Dad said we aren't supposed to touch things from the sky. So where'd this one come from? The river? Honestly, June. I wanted you to see it. I roll the pigeon onto its back with the end of my spoon. The colors on its wings, sage green, bruise purple, tans and grays like pebbles, are the colors of the sky on the days we're not allowed to go outside. Its feet are still open, like it's expecting to grasp something in its claws. A mouse, maybe. Or a mole. Those things that used to scurry around in the dirt or under the beds. Its talons are dull. They do not glint in the low gaslight of the kitchen. Why did your walker let you pick it up? June shrugs. He has so many of us to walk home. He doesn't see. I remember my own school days. Walking home while the air blustered through the streets. Our mittened hands secured to a long iron bar, led in turn by a walker who usually wanted to be somewhere else. I remember dropping each of my friends off at their own houses, watching them walk in the door, to be sure no one would be lost after dark, continuing on as the wind cut through my coat. June and I are the last on the line. Its eyes are too big, June says. Take it outside. Her eyebrows scrunch. I want to keep it. It's going to rot. No, it isn't. They never do. The ones on the road stay there until the city cleans them up. It's dinner time, I say. Put it outside and come sit down. She picks up the pigeon before I can stop her and carries it, cradles it, like it might flutter back to life at any moment, to the curtained-off section of the kitchen that we call her room. She doesn't even take off her coat or mittens. She slides the purple fabric back so I can't see inside her room. I could go in and demand that she get rid of the bird. I could remind her what Dad said, not only about touching things from the sky, but also about listening to me and remembering that I'm in charge. But no one comes away from an argument with June without a headache. So I wait. She'll come out when she's hungry. It gets dark early now, and suddenly, too, like the drawing of June's dark purple curtain across the entire sky. She eats her soup quickly, still wrapped in her outdoor gear, and says nothing about the bird harbored in her room, under her bed or on her shelf or wherever she's put it. Neither do I. As soon as the dishes are done, June goes back to her room, and I pull the wooden ladder to the corner of the kitchen. The hatch on the ceiling is rusty, but I force it open every night, so it hardly sticks anymore. The cold air rushes into the house, rattling the iron pans on the wall, until I slam the hatch shut behind me. I kneel on the tin slats of the roof and drag the telescope from beneath the tarp. It's bigger than I am if I extend it fully, which I always do. I have to stand on my toes to see anything. 
At first, the darkness is absolute and thick. There aren't any stars, of course, but the trees past the edge of the city glow sometimes, if the weather is right. It is tonight. I study the luminescence and note down the temperature, the length of the shadows cast across the dark roofs, the sick glow of the leaves. I write carefully and clearly in the bound paper book, so Dad will be able to read it when he comes back. Keeping records, that's what he always wanted. That's what he said was important. The only thing that's important. Numbness creeps over my fingers while I write. I have to stop after every measurement and tuck them back into my coat, watching and waiting until I can bear to hold the pencil again. It would be easier with a pen. I wouldn't have to press so hard, and then I wouldn't have to wait so long to regain my dexterity. But no one has pens anymore. The ink started to make people sick years ago. Beyond the trees, the silhouettes of the mountains stand rigid against the dark green horizon. Beyond that, there's the power plant. I've never been there. We aren't allowed. Sometimes they send out messages, like the ones that say to stay inside because the air is dangerous. Then school is cancelled, and June goes stir-crazy, and usually we yell at each other a bit. Sometimes the power plant reminds us to be careful when we eat things that grow in the ground. Dad always thought that was funny. It isn't the ground we have to worry about, he would say. It's the sky. I watch the mountains for a while, with my hands thawing in my pockets. My scarf grows stiff from the condensation of my breath. The wind cuts sharp, but a thick, rancid heat wavers beneath it, and I know that tomorrow we will not be allowed to go outside. I'll have to insist that June gets rid of the bird before then. After an hour... A new silhouette appears halfway up the tallest peak of the mountains. It's closer tonight, jagged on the edges, cutting a sharp figure against the sky. Huge paws secure it to the mountain. The eyes look toward me. I watch through the telescope as always, and it does not move. It never moves. It's like an old photograph pasted against the sky with glue. But tomorrow, it will be closer. And after that, it will be closer again. I know this with as much certainty as I know my name. I let my breath out, slow. The lens of the telescope clouds over. June knocks on the ladder. I get on my knees and put my head down through the hatch, back into the kitchen. She's standing there at the bottom of the ladder, staring up at me, and the whole thing looks distorted and upside down. I say, what? The bird is dead, she says. I know it's dead. It's been dead all day. But now it's dead. I put the telescope away and come down the ladder and stand at the kitchen table with her. The pigeon lies on its side, right where it did when she set it down beside my soup bowl earlier. Its wings are limp on the wood. Its lungs are deflated, its body sunken like a balloon. Its eyes, those massive pupils like the convex lens of the telescope, reflect none of the light, not even a reflection. It's dead, I say. I told you, June says. She agrees to bury it. I tell her that I can feel the wind, and we won't be allowed out tomorrow, so it has to be tonight. We take it to the backyard and jam our iron shovel into the frozen earth until we have a hole. It's too shallow. The wild dogs will get it before morning. We don't have a box for it. June lays the pigeon in the earth. My left palm has been bloodied by the impact of the shovel, and a drop falls on top of the bird and paints its wings crimson. Sorry, I say. I put my bloody hand in my pocket. It's okay, she says. 
The birds used to have blood. Maybe it likes yours. I look over the fence towards the mountains. The wolf is there, so close, I don't need the telescope to see it. My breath freezes in my lungs and it watches, still and silent. It watches and it watches. June is speaking and I do not hear her. Then it turns away and is gone in the shadows. June pushes handfuls of icy earth over the body of the pigeon. The color of its wings and the glare of my blood disappear. The dirt shifts it onto its side and for a moment I think it shivers, but it's still. June covers it completely. We stand there until our hands go completely numb and then we go back inside and we lock the door against the wind. That was The Watchers, written and read by Kay Hart. If you're enjoying our podcast, don't forget to visit our Patreon. You can donate as little as £2 for a shout-out. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Bye.